0: Now, here's Pastor Tom Meyer. One of the most damaging notions found among the people of God is that usefulness to God is the domain of a small elite group of people. and That service in the kingdom of God is reserved for quote-unquote special people. And These special people might be individuals who have a title like elder, or deacon, or deaconess, or pastor, or minister, or missionary, or some other designation of position or service. And accompanying such a belief is a belief that the abilities and responsibilities of service fall upon this select group of individuals, with the result that a number of believers, many believers, spend tremendous amounts of time totally inactive. And, of course, one of the reasons for this mindset, one of the reasons for this type of thinking and the accompanying inactivity is related to the fact that when many Christian leaders, many Christian missionaries, many Christian ministers speak, they give the impression that usefulness within the kingdom of God is somehow substandard if a person is not engaged in some quote-unquote full-time Christian service. And one of the unhappy experiences in all of this is that many Christians then believe that whatever contribution they might be able to make within the kingdom of God is somehow less significant or even irrelevant compared to someone who holds a position or title. And this is a tremendously unhealthy notion, yet it is very prevalent, and I think it's even more so today, with an emphasis towards larger and larger paid staffs within churches, with an emphasis more and more upon entertainment type of Christianity, and with an emphasis more and more coupled with that entertainment Christianity of a spectator mentality. And that's why I really believe it's important to emphasize that though we as a church have a pastoral staff. In reality, we need to look at ourselves as a church with over 200 ministers. That is vital to see. That is essential to see that we are more than just a a church with a staff. We are a church of ministers so that everyone that is involved in this church is involved in ministry in some way, shape, or form. Everyone has a place of usefulness. Everyone has a place of importance within the kingdom of God as they are a part of this church. And the reason I mention this this morning is because the parable before us hits at the very heart of this issue. And there is no indication that a small, select group of people are the ones who have the responsibilities and opportunities while the rest of us are to sit back comfortably and applaud or to stand on the sidelines and cheer. In fact, we're going to find this morning that the very opposite is true. And so I ask you to look, first of all, this morning at the setting of this parable. And you'll notice that the context is clearly given to us in verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. The people have been in the house of Zacchaeus and there's no indication that they have left that home, Zacchaeus has been converted, it may well be that Jesus delivers this parable either in uh, the yard or the house of Zacchaeus. And you see that we are told in verse 11 that while the people were listening, while the people were listening to what Christ had to say after the conversion of Zacchaeus, that Jesus went on to tell this parable. And notice with me, now as they heard these things, he, speaking of Jesus, spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Now, if you've been paying close attention to our study through the book of Luke, as far as the parables, and you look at Luke's description of Christ's ministry, you'll find out that Luke has been describing Christ's appointed journey to Jerusalem for some time. You can go all the way back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, and we're given a hint of that as we see the unfolding of Christ's work, because in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we're told, Now it came to pass... When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And through the ensuing chapters, we see that Jesus has a goal. Through the ensuing chapters, Jesus has a purpose. He is marching on towards Jerusalem. And since the 51st verse of Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been on this journey that would eventually not only lead him to Jerusalem, but also lead him to Calvary's cross. And now in the 11th verse of chapter 19, Jesus is within 17 miles of his destination, Jericho is along the road to Jerusalem. Jericho is about 15 miles from Bethany or 17 miles from Jerusalem. And Jesus recognized that as he came closer and closer to Jerusalem, the more his followers would be thinking about one thing. They would be thinking about the promised kingdom. That, that's the emphasis of the last part of verse 11 there. And, of course, this thinking is not unique to Luke's gospel. It's not unique to this point in time. Jesus refers to the same thing in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that after he performed a miracle, there was this concern that there were those who would come and set him up as king by force, and so he departed from them. And even the disciples themselves had not fully formed in their minds the real purpose for Jesus Christ coming into our world. They still didn't see it all. And this became more obvious as the Passover, as this Passover drew near. Many of them were thinking in a kind of political mindset, now's the time, this is going to be it. Jesus Christ is going to use this time as Messiah to set up his rule, his reign. There's going to be this political liberation, there's going to be this liberation from Rome, and now's the time that's going to happen. And in fact, if you go through and look carefully, this same notion runs through Mark's gospel, because as James and John come to a point, as they're getting close now to this time of entering into Jerusalem, they ask the question, And they want to know if they can have special seats in the kingdom. Can we sit at your right hand? Can we sit at your left hand when you set up their kingdom? And the question is, why did they ask that at that point in time? And it was because they thought Christ was preparing to set up his kingdom, and it was the time that he was going to set it up was immediate. They wanted to get their request in quickly because they thought Jesus might be picking the seats. And if Jesus was going to pick the seats, then they wanted the best seats. And they wanted to make sure that their name was at the top of the list. So, Lord, can we sit them, Would you grant that we would sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand when you come in your kingdom? They wanted to make sure they were there. And we know even as we go through the Gospels, when we come to the book of Acts, even at the book of Acts, this kingdom mindset is still very much a part of them because as they're all gathered together before Jesus departs, he asks this question, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? In Acts chapter 1, verse 6. And they could not get the kingdom out of their minds. They still had the notion that Jesus was going to set up this kingdom immediately upon the earth. And as you put this together then, you see a responsibility that Jesus had, that there was this responsibility pressing down upon him to constantly point his followers away from their earthly political concerns and onto his heavenly spiritual priority. And that was not an easy task. So in Luke chapter 19... As they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, after the salvation of Zacchaeus, as our Lord has been teaching, he recognizes, I need to remind them again. I need to emphasize again that this is not going to happen the way they think it's going to happen. And so, as we look at this, in Luke chapter 19, with the Passover so very close, with the Passover reminding everyone of God's glorious deliverance out of bondage from under Egypt, And the revolutionary spirit that was welling up within the disciples and the people around him, Luke tells us as they were listening to Christ's words, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom was going to appear notice immediately or at once. And so the Bible makes it very clear that the kingdom the disciples were looking for will appear and it will appear suddenly. But there was no indication that it was going to appear before the disciples immediately at that time. And so in this ensuing parable, Jesus points out that the kingdom he is proclaiming, number one, will not be confined to a particular nation. That's why the gospel goes into all the world today, and he was going to emphasize that, and that was very important for them to understand. They needed to move away from their Jewish mindset of Israel only. They needed to to spread their mindset to look out on the fields of earth. And in turn, the Lord wanted them to see, secondly, that the outward manifestation of this kingdom was not going to be in the immediate future as far as a political reign upon the earth, and they also needed to realize that. But in addition to all of that, he wanted them to understand, and this is what's most critical for us to see this morning, he wanted them to understand that everyone was to remain faithful in the performance of the God-given responsibilities that they had until Jesus Christ returned. That's the reason for this parable. And the emphasis upon everyone here is vital. So that none either in that time or even today would ever think that they could exempt themselves from the responsibility that number one they had in ministering the gospel to the ends of the earth and number two as they would look at that that they would see that they have a responsibility in ministering because one day they will give an account. So that's the background that's the context the substance of the story or the content of the parable is fairly straightforward. Jesus tells us the story of a nobleman who leaves to receive a kingdom for himself. And notice in verse 12 Therefore, Jesus is speaking here. He said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And we find as we go on here, before he leaves, before he departs, he entrusts his servants with a pound. Some of your Bibles probably say mina. Um, It's not a bird, but a sum of money. And he entrusts to them this money, this pound, and he gives to each of his servants the exact same amount and a command. Notice with me in verse 13. Verse 13. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten pounds, and said to them, Occupy or do business until I come. And let me say one thing. This equal amount to each of his servants is the, the most significant fact in this entire parable. Though the amount itself is important in that it was equal to approximately four months of wages, that's not the most significant thing. What is important to see here is that the nobleman gave the same amount to each of his servants, and the reason for that will become very clear as we we go on. Now, we also discover in verses 14 and 15 that despite opposition, the nobleman not only receives his kingdom in a far country, he also returns. And when he returns, he calls his servants into account. Notice with me, picking up in verse 14, that his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, and that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And... As we look at that, as you put all of that together, the ensuing verses then detail the accounts that each individual gave unto the Lord, and finally we find that those who opposed him in verse 27 meet a dreadful end, and you notice there in verse 27 where the the nobleman says, bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now as you put all of this together, this is another great little story that Jesus has told, and as always, there's a tremendous purpose behind it. And the question we need to consider is, what's the purpose? What's the reason? What does Jesus want us to see this morning, 2,000 years later? What does Jesus want us to know and understand about this this story that's so important to us today? And how are we to interpret this parable without doing disservice to what Jesus was communicating and without harming all that we know about Jesus' plans for his kingdom? And so as we think about that, I need to remind us all again that since we're studying a parable, we are dealing with an allegory. And it is important, as we have noted before, that you cannot press every factor in an allegory to a logical conclusion. And so we must remember again, especially in this form of teaching, that the main parts are the plain parts, and the plain parts are the main parts. And what we want to do is focus on the main parts and the plain parts within this. And very often in the parable, there's one central truth which is being proclaimed. And unfortunately, many times, people will try to press all of the details, the incidental details, to some unwarranted conclusion. And in so doing, they become so preoccupied with all of those incidental details that they miss the main part or the plain part. And so what we're going to try to do this morning is look at the plain part. And that brings us to the significance, then, of the interpretation. And the first thing we see here is that Jesus is describing himself in terms of this man of noble birth. There is no greater one in all heaven or earth, of noble birth, than the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There is no other one. There is no other name. There is no other name higher. There is no other person greater. He is the one of noble birth. And he is describing the fact here that after the cross, he was going to ascend to his Father in heaven. And from that place of kingly authority, he would receive this kingdom at his Father's right hand, and he would reign over the entire universe, and the heart of his work would be within the church Named, by, by, uh, named according to his own name, the Church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was going to establish, if you like, his territorial jurisdiction from heaven. And this was something that Paul underscored as he wrote to those at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, as he focused on what Christ had accomplished through his resurrection and ascension back to the Father's hand. And I want you to listen to what Paul had to say concerning that. In Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul speaks about that, he shares this heartbeat of what really went on concerning Jesus Christ's ascension back to the Father because we read this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, that which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Paul was writing the fact that Jesus Christ ascended back to the right hand of God, and he was given authority. He was given authority over the church, but he's also given greater authority, and he has a mission, he has a purpose, and he is going to administer that mission, he is going to administer that purpose, as is described in Acts chapter 15, how that God is calling out a people for his name, and that called out a people, the assembly, so to speak, is the church itself, the body of Jesus Christ, and Christ will administer that work from heaven. And as we look then at this parable, Jesus depicts the story of the nobleman who went away to become king, who administered and then also comes back. And what's more, just as the nobleman returned after having gone into this distant country for an indefinite period of time, and that's the emphasis here upon the far country, so Jesus Christ will one day return from heaven after an indefinite period of time. And the same truth, then, is detailed for us over and over again through the Gospels, that Jesus has left this world for an indefinite period of time. And for us, it may seem like a protracted period of time. And yet, one day, Jesus Christ will return as King of kings and Lord of lords in all of his glory to set up his rule, his reign upon earth, so that his will will be done both on earth as it is already being played out in heaven. And as we look at that, it's illustrated in Matthew chapter 25 in this way, in the parable of the ten wives and the ten foolish virgins. We're told that the bridegroom was a long time in coming, so long that the, the virgins fell asleep. And then he returned. In Luke chapter 19, after a long time, the master of the servants returns, and as he returns, he returns to settle the accounts with them. And we have to remember that when we think about time, we see time differently than God sees it. As time is considered in God's heart and God's mind, a thousand years or as a day, a days is a thousand years in the eyes of the Lord. And so when we're tempted to assign events to God's working, to Christ's return to the calendar of the end times, we must pay close attention to the parables because they give the underscoring fact that there is an indefinite element there, that we're not sure how long, and we see that also with Christ's teaching overall. They give an indication that there will be some delay before Jesus Christ returns to earth. And what we do know is this, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven, and He has clearly promised that He will come back again. So that as we look in John chapter 14, Jesus Christ said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, where the angels say, This same Jesus, the one who is here upon the earth, this one who you handled, the one who was crucified, the one who was raised again, this same Jesus which you have seen go up into heaven, shall come in like manner as you have seen him go up. He is coming again. He departed to a great distance all the way to heaven, but his return is certain. And although the length of his absence is indefinite in the mind of men, it is certain in the mind of God. And so as we look at this, in the meantime, the nobleman gave responsibility to those who were his servants and said, Occupy till I come. That's what you and I are to be about today. We are to occupy until Jesus Christ returns. And so too Jesus Christ has given us those responsibilities who are his servants to be about their master's spiritual business. Which brings us then to the heart, the significance of the pound or the mina. Given to each of his ten servants. And sometimes, if you go through and you look at the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, though it's a parallel to this story in some ways, the amount given to the servants there varies. It's different. And the differing talents indicate the differences between people when it comes to comes to giftedness. It indicates the fact that as we look out this morning, we are different in our abilities. We are different in our talents. We are different in our giftedness. We are different. And as we look at that, the giftedness by God is to be used for his honor, for his work, for his glory. And from the parable of the talents, we see an obvious fact, that we are not equally gifted, only responsible to use what God has given us. We're not all put together in the same way. There are clear distinctions between us concerning our abilities, and and God ordained it to be so. But that was not to create a hierarchy. It was not to create the fact that one is better than another. All that God does, he does for a purpose. In the end, he gifts us. He gives us talents. He gives us that giftedness so that we might use it for his honor and for his glory. But when we come to this parable, there's a difference. Because though the distinction is present in the parable of the talents, the case is just the opposite in the parable of the pounds. And it's very informative. And the issue is, in this case, everyone in Luke chapter 19 is in the same boat. Each servant has been given the same amount. Not five talents, not three talents, not one talent. Everyone's been given one pound, one minor. Which brings us to the question that we must consider. It's a question I want want you to ask for yourself. Here I am. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And next to me are other servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this room, there are many servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And throughout our world, there are multitudes of servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all different. We're all different in terms of background. We are different in terms of ability. Different in terms of talent. We are different in terms of our giftedness. So what is it that Jesus Christ has given to each of us here this morning as followers of Jesus Christ that is without distinction, that is without ability, without talent, any distinctions in any of those areas? What has Jesus given to every follower and that every follower is responsible for and is exactly the same. What is that this morning? What is it that you have been given, that the person next to you has been given, that everyone here is a believer in Jesus Christ has been given, that everyone in the world that is a believer in Jesus Christ has been given, and that they're responsible for? What is that one thing? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. We have been all given the same measure, of the good news, because we've all been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are responsible for that which he has given us, and that's what he's given us. Jesus has given each one of his followers the gospel. And we are responsible to invest that capital investment in us in kingdom business. It's a capital investment which in turn he has provided for every one of us So when we look at Matthew chapter 28 and we're told to go into all the world, we go into all the world because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ and we are to go and to make disciples in every nation. We are to go forth. Why? Because Jesus Christ has invested his life in us. He has invested, so to speak, his capital in us. He has given us his gospel. Now we are to go and we are to tell and we are to share. That's what this is all about. And that means that when you think of being a servant of Jesus Christ, When you think about having a pound or a mina as it were placed in your hand, think of the good news of the gospel that has been given to you. To you, whatever your name might be. To you, wherever you might live. And to you, whatever your talents might be. Jesus has exclusively given to you the responsibility and opportunity to share his good news, the good news that you know, the good news that has set you free. He has given you personally the responsibility to share that gospel message with others. It's that simple. And that's why Jesus takes this story of ten servants, ten being the number here of totality, and points out that we're all given the same amount. And though we differ in our talents, though we differ in our abilities in respect to the gift of the gospel, we are identical. And so the good news that he leaves with us, his servants, has been given so that we might invest it while he is absent. So that there will be a favorable return when he comes back again. Do you see that? Do you see the picture here? Do you see how uh, such a glorious picture it is of what God has called us to? He's made it so easy. He's made it so plain. I've given you the gospel. Now you're responsible for that. And I want a return on my investment in your life. And you will give an account when I come again. The good news is his word. The word contained in scripture. The word that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the word that we proclaim. It's the word that we are to scatter. It's the word to which we are to live out. And it was never, ever intended to be our own personal private possession saying, mine. It's never been intended for our own personal enjoyment. And when this truth really grips my heart, I will be different. And I really believe when this truth really grips the hearts of everyone here this morning, then we will be different. And when this truth really grips our church, we will be so different that we will not have room to hold everyone and We don't have room right now to hold everyone So we will really have a big problem then. And then we'll have to look at purchasing the property next door. We'll have to look at building another building. We'll have to look at going to two surfaces. Because if this truth grips our hearts, then we understand God has made an investment in our lives, and that investment costs the life of His only begotten Son. And He has given us the gospel, and then with that, He expects us to share that gospel and to bring a return until He comes again. You see, God did not give us the gospel so that we might benefit from it and then keep it to ourselves. He did not give us the Scripture so that simply we might memorize it. He did not give us the Gospel so that we might merely enjoy it. Jesus Christ gave us the precious Gospel, His good news, in order that we might invest it in the lives of others. That's why Beverly's gone to Columbia. That's why missionaries go out from new tribes. That's why there's three missionaries that we have no idea what's happened to them over these last eight years because they caught that vision, they caught that burden that there's a reason and there's a higher calling simpler than to just get through this life and it's to take that which has been invested in their lives and to share and pour out their lives wherever it might be. It might even be just next door to your neighbor but to invest that gospel that has been invested in your life in the life of someone else. You see this morning and I want you to listen carefully each of you have a story, a personal story of redemption. Your story of redemption is different than my story of redemption as far as how it all unfolded. Behind it all is a loving God who drew you with bands of love, with cords of love, how a God who sought you before you ever sought Him. And you also have your own sphere of influence. You have a unique group of friends. You have a special area of involvement. You and your corner of this small world and me and my corner of this small world. And all of us are to invest that which Jesus has given us in our unique, one-of-a-kind setting. And one day, He's coming back. And he's going to check up on you and he's going to check up on me to see what we've done with the gospel that he's given us. And this is supremely important for Jesus is not coming back to ask us if we enjoyed ourselves while we had this little stay upon the earth while he was gone. And he's not going to come back and ask us anything else, but then what did you do with what I gave you? And the simple truth is Jesus Christ saved us, Jesus Christ set us free so that we might serve him for his honor, for his glory. And this work is to take place during that time period while he is gone, while he is physically absent from the earth. It's clearly between the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. And this is where and when, today, right now, we are to extend our ministry, we are to exercise our ministry for Jesus Christ. To those who have received the gospel, there's one thing we must do, proclaim it. And in proclaiming it, we must live it out. And we must live out our lives in such a manner that through our word and through our example, sinners will come to Christ. So the believers will be strengthened and we ourselves will be encouraged. And that's our purpose. Now, as we go back here, just in case you're wondering, back in verse 14, the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying we will not have this man to reign over us. In case you're wondering about that and how all that fits in, uh, one thing you have to make sure of, you don't run this thing to its illogical conclusion. You don't have any delegations running all the way to heaven saying, we're not going to have Christ to rule and reign over us. They're not going to get there. You know, they're just shaking their fists upon the earth saying, we will not have this man to rule and reign over us. What's important to see is this is a reference to Jesus Christ, and it's a reference to the fact that there are those who don't want, don't want his rule and reign. What's being stated here is the truth that you'll see first in, in Matthew, in reality, as far as in the New Testament, and in Psalm 118 originally. You'll find it in 1 Peter as well, where we're told, this cornerstone, which man has rejected, God has made the very capstone of his building. Reference to Jesus Christ because he is the cornerstone over which men and women stumble daily. And they stumble over him because they hate him. They don't want him to reign over their lives as king. Kind of has a Psalm 14:1 ring to it where the fool has said in his heart, no God. And what the world says is we don't want a king, we don't want God's Christ, we don't want Messiah, we don't want a king reigning and ruling over us because we don't want God. God. That's at the heart of this, and that's what happens here, but we'll see that that doesn't stop Jesus Christ to do what he's going to do as setting up his rule and his reign. Now, the third thing we see here as far as the lesson in interpretation is the nobleman's return, described for us in verse 15, symbolizes the return of Christ and what he will do and what he expects of us. Jesus is going to come back again. One in every 24 verses in the New Testament speaks of the fact of Christ's return. The time of his return is secret, not only to the Father, but he will return, his return will be sudden, it will be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and his return will bring eternal separation. And what's more, at his return, he is going to conduct his own investigation concerning what you and I have done as Christians with the gospel. So let's look at what the nobleman did. Let's pick up uh, the last part of verse 15. And after having received his kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gathered or gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas, or your pound has earned ten pounds. I want you to notice the words here. It does not say what the servant had done. you catch that? You don't see this hotshot hot servant saying, Lord, I was a good investor. Not like most people this last year. <laughs> I was a good investor. I really made some profit for you. He does not say what the servant had gained from it. What he does say the servant testifies what the mina itself had gained or the pound had gained. And you know, we live in a world that is constantly trying to get something from it when God is really telling us, get with it. One day Jesus Christ is going to check to see what we gain with what he has given us. The work is the work of the word. The power is in the gospel, not in our ability even to communicate the gospel. And there's something here that's so very important for us to learn. I think too many of us think, I can't do that. I can't share the gospel. I don't have the right training. I don't have the right understanding. I'm not, a good, I'm not really good at communicating the gospel. I don't think I have enough ability. I don't have the training. After all, I can't preach. I can't stand up there and do what other people do. I can't stand up there and share. And we can't put it all together like so-and-so has put it together. And you know what? That's not even important at all this morning. The issue is that you and I are just to do it because the power is in the Word itself. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the good news. And I I think that was underscored for me a number of years ago when I was talking with a missionary from South America. This missionary had led a man to the Lord who could not speak. And this man had a burden of sharing the gospel. And he didn't have a clue. What am I going to do if I can't speak? You know, he knew a little bit of sign language, but that doesn't help for everyone who doesn't know sign language. So what was he going to do? And this man finally decided one day that he was going to stand out in a busy intersection. And he was going to stand there... And he was going to te- testify and give forth a message to everyone who would passed by. And if you've ever been in South America, you can then probably visualize, here's a street corner that doesn't have a light because at least when I was in Bolivia, there were no lights. You just, whoever blew the horn first got through the intersection. That's how it worked. I was with a missionary who didn't have a horn and he would just put his head out the window and yell, beep, beep, and it didn't work. Um, but here's this man who would stand there and he got a cross and all he would do is this. He would point up into the heavens point down to the cross, and then point into his heart. And what he was saying is, the one who is in heaven came down to earth to die on the cross, and he is in my heart. He was using the pound, the mina, the gospel that God had given him, and he was communicating it in his way, in his setting. And that's what we are asked to do because the power is not in us, it's in the gospel. The power of God is in the gospel of Christ nuts in us. It's not our trickery. It's not our sales techniques. It's in the power of God, taking the Word of God by the Spirit of God and placing it into the heart of the individual, bringing forth fruit unto salvation. That's what it's all about. We don't need to be powerful people in ourselves because the power is in the Word itself. We need to, we need to recognize we have a powerful gospel. We need to be weak people in order that we and others may understand that the power is in the gospel and not in ourselves. We need to be channels, As the hymn talks about channels only, with all thy wondrous power flowing to us and flowing through us every day and every hour. That's what it's all about. So that whether you're washing dishes, whether you're at work, whether you're a teller at a bank, whether you're signing your name as an attorney, whether you're diagnosing as a doctor, whatever it is, every day and every hour, the work of the gospel is to go through you and through me. So the first one came back and said, your mina has earned ten more. Again, what earned the more? The mina, the gospel. Every word is important here. What does the work? It's the gospel itself. The, the servant doesn't say, hey, I'm a hot shot. I took this one and it increased to uh, uh, 10. Now we have 11 here, a thousand percent growth factor. Not the case at all. So, and then the, the next one comes and says in verse 18, your mina, your pound has gained five. The response to the first, well done, you good and faithful servant, take charge of 10 cities. To the second one in like manner, take charge of five cities. But I want you to look at this third fellow in verse 20. This guy comes up and says, Sir, and watch carefully here, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept and put away in a, a napkin or a handkerchief. We'll get to what that is in just a minute. And You might be thinking, well, wait a second now. You know, there are ten. How come we we'll only see three? Well, Jesus didn't want to go through all ten. He didn't want to waste everyone's time by going through the ten accounts. Instead, he takes the three that give forth the message that he wants to communicate at this point. The first servant steps up and says, Lord, Master, your mina has gained ten. Second one announces, your mina has gained five. The final servant discloses, I haven't done anything with your mina. I haven't done anything with this. And the point that Jesus wanted to drive home here is very clear. This fellow missed the boat altogether. And this fellow may be like so many Christians today. And what's really amazing to me in this situation is how this servant tries to justify his indolence, his laziness. Notice in verse 20, or uh, excuse me, verse 21, he said, For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And notice in uh, verse 22, and then he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You know, it's strange, but he's the only one that brings into account anything about the character, of the master. They're all working for the same master, but only one comes up with this stuff about, you know, I know how you are, you're an austere man and you, you take up that which you didn't sow and so forth and so on. And I really believe it's because he didn't really have a leg to stand on. He's trying to justify now, because notice the the nobleman's response. He says, you know, why don't I just judge you according to your own words? If that's the case, if you thought that's the way I was, then why didn't you at least go out and take your money then to the lender bench where you could earn interest? I mean, if you were afraid of me, and you're such a smart guy, then you would have at least earned interest with my money until I came back. The fact of the matter was this individual was a sham, and what he said was untrue. He did nothing with the pound for himself, nor did he do anything with it for anyone else. And what he wraps this pound up in is so very, very interesting. It says a napkin, it means a handkerchief. But if you look and you study it out, it's a special kind of handkerchief. You ever notice, you know, when it's real hot during the day and somebody's working, they'll take and they'll wrap a handkerchief around their head. You know, now we have things fancy, you know, we've got sweatbands with Nike on them or anything. But it was, you know, this was a first century sweatband is all it was. And he says, you know, I've wrapped it up in the sweatband. And the master's got to be thinking, you did what? And you didn't do anything with it. And you wrap it up in something that signifies that you're a hard worker? You know, that's what he's saying there when he's saying, I I wrapped it up in this napkin. You know, this was a sweat cloth, but there was no sweat in the cloth because he never did anything at all. And so this in reality was a no-sweat situation except for the responsibility and the pressure this guy's starting to feel. Because to wrap up this coin in what was used to wipe sweat from the brow during the heat of the day when the person was working when this servant had never done anything, was the epitome of someone who had done nothing in his life. And he's like the one who professes faith in Jesus Christ and then thinks, you know, the Lord requires too much of me. I'll give him this much, but not anymore. You know, over the years I've heard people say, well, Jesus is such a hard taskmaster. He makes demands that I don't want to respond to. You know, he wants to take out of some things in my life that he never put in. You know, he wants to take out sin. He wants to take out some of those pleasurable things that I like. He wants to take out self. And I don't like it one bit. And that's what this individual looked at his master like. And these type of individuals think that sacrifice of ease, of comfort and pleasure makes you a loser when in, actually, in actual fact they make you the winner. Now let's get back to the story then. What happened to this man? We find here that the nobleman took the pound away from the servant. He gave it to the guy who had ten. And the people said, that's incredible. The guy already has ten. Why give him some more? And you see that in verses 24 and 25. And here's what Jesus says then. Here's the deal. Whoever makes full and faithful use of all that I have given them will receive further opportunities and further blessings and will receive a rich welcome when they enter into the kingdom of heaven. However, he who neglects the task and doesn't use what I give him will himself become spiritually impoverished and will appear before the judgment bar of God poor and naked on that day. The commentators do not agree with whether this was a believer or not. All I can say is one thing. If he was a believer, this guy is on very shaky ground. I believe he meets the description of the person found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, This individual is saved yet so as by fire. That's it. He just makes it in by the skin of his teeth. He begins by rebuking division in the church at Corinth, but then he goes on and talks about how if you build on this foundation gold, precious stone, silver, there'll be this reward, wood, hay, and stubble. You'll suffer loss, yet you yourself will be saved, yet so as by fire. And there's such challenging words there that on the day of Christ's return, it will be quality, not quantity. And it's clear to me as I look at this that the Bible teaches something very important here, that there is one and only one way to get to heaven, but there are two ways that you will enter into glory. And when we look at the one, the prospect is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, which tells us there will be that rich welcome afforded to those individuals into the kingdom of heaven. There'll be that special welcome. There'll be banners flying. There'll be flags waving. And there'll be that well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's one way to enter heaven as a child of God because you've been found faithful. That's what it's about here with the, the individual who are in ten, the individual who are in five. On the other side, you may reach the shores of heaven like a shipwrecked sailor. And in this case, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, your eyebrows are going to be singed, your clothes charred, and you're going to be scorched on your rear end, and you're going to just get there, saved yet so as by fire. You made it home a Christian, but that's just about it. Little to show for the life lived upon the earth. Let's just pull it all together as we try to bring a summary for our lives. Because I really believe we would do well to think this out. We would do well to allow the Scripture to share with us and to adjudicate to us what success really means in the kingdom of God. We would, do a lot, we would do well to allow the message of this parable to determine how effective we really are in life. Because, there again, there are those who, as I shared at the, the beginning, who think, I don't have that much to offer. I don't have that much to give. There's no place for me. I don't have that much good to do. And I want to tell you this morning, under the authority of God's word, as a child of God, you are significant. As a child of God, you are important. As a child of God, you have a very, very special place. I want you to understand that. God wants you to use what he has given you. And so don't be beguiled into thinking you can't be useful in service. Don't be beguiled by those who would tell you you have nothing to offer. All of us have something to offer because all of us who have received the gospel have something very precious to give. In our homes, this place, our community, and our world are places for investing the capital of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has given to us. And so there are two thoughts here. We'll wrap them up very quickly. There's a distinction that this parable reveals. The thing that should spur us on, I believe, is the frightening end of this story back in verse 27. It is in reference to the day when the enemy is cast out from the presence of Christ forever. Loved ones, the fact of the matter is this that one day God will discriminate between faith and those who had no faith. God will discriminate between the wise and the unwise, the saved and the lost. And it will be over. It will be done. Whether that was your next door neighbor who had hundreds of opportunities for you to witness to, or whether it's that one in, in, in Colombia or South America or in Africa, wherever it might be, that may have only just briefly heard the gospel message. The second thing here is the devotion this parable invites. I trust this morning that you'd like to be devoted more to Jesus Christ. I would. I mean, wouldn't it be great to live out the truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it says you're not your own, you're brought with the price. therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. That we're not our own, that we're his. Wouldn't it be great that one day, when this is all over, all of the hurry and the scurry, all of the activity, all of the energy, all of the heartbreak and all of the joys, when it's all over, and we stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords, wouldn't it be great? to have the King of kings and Lord of lords there in front of us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant.